Well, if you open your Bibles this morning to the fourth chapter of the Epistle to the Ephesians, we'll continue where we left off last week. The previous Sunday, we focused on verses 13 through 16, which resulted from the equipping of the saints in the previous verses by these gifted men that God has given to the church. And in that section, we saw that the apostle comes to a magnificent and practical point found in verse 14 and 15. Let me reread that to you as a reminder. It says, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So we have sort of a progression in these passages, 12 to 16. First, we see that there are gifted men given to the church from a verse 11. And then in the following verses, we see how the church is really meant to come together and grow and mature. We see that as leaders in the church, equip believers, and then the members begin doing the work of service. Every individual in the church looking for ways that they can serve and what ministries God has for them. For some, it may be starting a new ministry that's needed in the church. For others, it may be serving in some capacity or another in existing ministries. But what we see is that every member is using the gift that God has given to them. It will be intentionally exercising those gifts for the edification of others. And really all of that flows out of a love for God. And so as the saints are equipped and as the saints begin to serve, doing the works that God has prepared for them, the church is built up. Then we acknowledged that, just rather recognize that when you have a church where the hearts of the people truly belong to Christ, that you see they want to do all of these things, right? This isn't merely a mechanical thing. It's all born out of a genuine heart and love for both God, his church, and his people. You see that they want to serve one another, that they want the godless community around them to know how great their Savior is. And as they serve and as they love one another, everyone is encouraged. And in the midst of all that, God grows and builds the church into a mature body, primarily spiritually, but then often even physically as the gospel goes out and is proclaimed in the community. And then the apostle makes the point that this pattern is the pattern that is meant to continue in the church until, as he uses the phrase, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And so that means forever, right? Because we'll never fully get there until we're glorified. And so this is the pattern of the modern day church. And so if you want to know what is happening in the church, what should be happening in the church, this is really the pattern and the progression that we should be seeing. The leaders of the church equipping the members of the church who are serving one another in the community, and ultimately God grows the church as they're all edified in that way. The unity of the faith we spoke about last week means unity by the content of the faith. Right? He's already speaking to believers. He's writing a letter to believers. He's not saying that they're to be unified in the saving faith. They're already unified in the faith. He's really talking about a church being unified in sound doctrine. The content of the faith is what the phrase means there. We're unified by the teachings of the faith. We're unified by sound doctrine. And through all of this, the apostle told us that we are to become mature in the faith. And so the expectation is that we really only remain children in the faith for a short time and that we are no longer content with the simple things, the surface things of the faith, but that we really begin to both need and desire what is often referred to as the meat of the word rather than just the milk. We think of doctrines such as inerrancy and sufficiency and the authority of scripture all doctrines that are vital but to be honest these are fundamental and quite frankly 
rudimentary doctrines. These are basic core doctrines that every Christian should come to know and understand very early on in their faith and embrace them wholeheartedly. The doctrine of salvation and a clear understanding of the gospel are all necessary, but these are really the milk of the faith. I think it's a sad testimony that that would not be true for the majority of Christians today. If you were to go back in time, oh, maybe 70, 80, 90 years ago, you could ask, generally speaking, the Christians in the church what any of these doctrines are, and a large percentage would likely be able to tell you what they were. Today, I don't even think that's true. In fact, in today's Christian world, most people don't even know what the word doctrine means, much less what these doctrines are. But these are the fundamental doctrines of the faith. These are the milk of the faith. And so we must come to an unwavering trust of these things so that then we can move on and grow in the faith. And as Paul says, we are no longer to be children. The apostles really love and care and precision here in the passage is very astonishing. Not only does he give us the process by which the church is meant to grow, but then he gives us the result of that as well. And then the consequences of failing to obtain the result. He's very meticulous and he's very careful in his writings. And if you've noticed the Apostle Paul's writings, he often goes from doctrine to practical application. Doctrine to then how do I live in light of that doctrine? And he's very good at doing those things. And so he says we're no longer to be children. And then immediately he gives us the reason as to why it's undesirable to remain children. He says that children are tossed here and there by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. This is what happens to those who remain children in the faith. They're susceptible to every form of teaching and doctrine, and not just doctrines that come from within the church, but susceptible to every sort of philosophy and teaching that comes from outside of the church as well. Children are all susceptible to wrong thinking because they are susceptible to wrong teaching. And so he uses the picture of being tossed by waves. It's an interesting picture. We ought to really get a lot out of that, being where we are in the world. When he talks about being tossed about by waves, just think of what the waves are like here. There's never any real steadiness in the waves of the ocean. There's always movement. There's always some movement and this is the picture that he paints for the immature believer. There's never real steadiness in their walk with Christ. There's never any real steadiness in their doctrinal beliefs. And so they just kind of move from one place to another, back and forth, by whatever sounds best to them at the time. There's no firm doctrine. There's no rooted beliefs in I think this is perhaps often the most notable in the lives of Christians when they face hardships or difficulties. We sort of often see this kind of thing come out. But God desires that the man or woman of God become steady, become faithful, become unwavering, that they grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, as the text told us last week. So you move from... As an example, you move from sort of caring about the style of music to needing doctrinally rich words. It's an example of going from a baby in the faith to a more mature believer. You move from simply being a hearer of the sermon to being a participator. You move from barely getting to the service before it just because you need to be there to start maybe to be there early so that you can serve and fellowship in other words, the style of music isn't what's important to the mature believer. I've never had a mature believer in the faith message the church or me in any other place that I've ministered to and ask me, 
questions like, well, what style of music do you play? That is not the question a mature believer asks. It may be a real question that someone very young in the faith may ask, but that's not where we're to stay. The mature believer, it's that when you're singing, it reflects the truth of Scripture. It represents the true character of Christ. And when you sing, as an example, you don't care what anyone else thinks because you aren't merely singing, you're worshiping the God who saved you. See, there's a difference in mentality. Rather than just wanting the style of worship that you enjoy. That's a mature posture of worship. You move from being a hearer of the sermon to a participator. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, in other words, instead of just sitting in the pew and listening, waiting for the sermon to be over so that you can get on with your day, the mature believer comes in having already prayed that God's word would have an effect in his life and in his heart, and you sit eagerly waiting for God to speak to you through his word with maybe pen in hand and a heart ready to be moved by God. Do you see the difference? Going from an immature believer to a mature believer. You move from just barely creeping into the service at the last moment because church is just something that you need to do and maybe even encouraged by it to being one who comes early because you know that you have gifts that are meant for the body and you want to serve and you want to fellowship and you do so as unto the Lord and it's your Savior that gets the glory and you understand that and your brothers and sisters in Christ who are built up by your serving and you understand that and you want that and so you come with the mindset that says I get to come to the house of the Lord rather than I have to come to the house of the Lord you see there's a difference in mentality and so you move from being a child with little understanding to a mature believer who engages in everything in the faith Because you love the Lord and his people deeply with understanding. And so Paul says that as everyone is being equipped and doing the work of service and being unified under sound doctrine, that the body of Christ is built up in love. I mean, this is really a beautiful, rich picture of what God's church is meant to be. And this is really the type of church that we aim to be here at Homer Reformed Baptist Church. We want to grow into mature believers who look like this. So all throughout Scripture, God encourages the body to grow up. We looked at a few other passages last week. I'll just remind you of a couple. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says to the Corinthians, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. You see, that's very interesting. There's a correlation, there's a similarity to the very immature and still the fleshly world. But he goes on to say, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? So, of course, he's admonishing the Corinthians to grow up. So they had it become mature, and Paul says that this by the fact that they were still acting much like the world. Later on in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells them to no longer be children in their thinking, but to grow up. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, 12 through 14, says that instead of being teachers as they should have been by now, They still need milk and not solid food. And then he beckons them to grow up. In chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity. That's really the admonition Paul's giving to the Ephesian church here. The goal is that every Christian, as he says in the passage from last week, comes to the knowledge of the Son of God to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so the goal is that every Christian become mature in the faith and that their lives reflect that maturity. And so the apostle then is going to move from this focus on unity of the Spirit to a very practical section of the text. 
if you notice the apostle's habit, as I stated before, is that he tends to give very rich doctrinal truths and that he follows them up very closely with very practical teaching. And in this particular epistle in Ephesians, the first three chapters are really the theologically deep chapters, then preceded by four through six, which are very much practical implications of those doctrines and application as well. And so as we come this morning to verse 17, we're going to see the last major division in the book of Ephesians. This is the last major dividing point in the book of Ephesians. And so I want to kind of pause here before we get into an exposit verse 17. And I want to give a little 17 through 19. And I want to give a little bit of an overview of the rest of the book because we're moving now from the deep theological richness of the book to now a very practical life application. And I want to give kind of a fresh picture of where we've come from and where the apostle is taking us since we tend to dive down in very small uh, sections of the passage. We can sometimes sort of lose the big picture. And so I want to sort of remind us this morning and then we'll come to our verse in 17. We spent the first three chapters of Ephesians, as we stated earlier, hearing about the great doctrines of salvation. These are the fundamental truths of Christianity. If, if ever you wanted to ask the question, what are just the very basic fundamental things that I should understand about Christianity, you can go to the first three chapters of Ephesians. There are others, but certainly those would be a place to start. First, we're told in those three chapters that the work of God alone is that which brings salvation. That God chose us who believe before the foundations of the world. We're told that we were predestined to become sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. We learn that it's by faith alone in the Lord Jesus that one is saved, not of any works of our own, so that no one may base, boast, and that God would receive all the glory of our salvation. Salvation, we learn, is pure grace towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, from there, Paul moves from the doctrines of salvation really to the doctrines of the church. We're told of the one new church, right? The unification of the Jew and the Gentile, the breaking down of the barrier between the two, and that now there's only one singular body of Christ and how there's no longer division between peoples, that all who come to salvation in Christ are made into one body. There's no white church or black church or Asian church or African church in the whole sense of God's kingdom. There's just one body of Christ. And so he makes that point very clear to us there. Paul spends considerable time on the nature of the church and these doctrines, which every Christian should know very well. And then we move from there into chapter 4. This is where the apostle starts to move from the, the theological doctrines, the richness of those, to practical living. He's given us the doctrine, and now he's saying, so in light of all that I've taught you, this is the way that now you should live. He begins the chapter 4 with a plea to work hard for unity in the body of Christ, and he explains how the church is built up, imploring us to mature in the faith. And then calling us to grow up and no longer be children, which we covered last week, we come to this last big section, which is really from verse 17 through the rest of the book of Ephesians. From 17 onward to the end of chapter 6, Paul enters into the practical world of the Christian life. He's just told us that we must no longer be children, and now the apostle aims to really just teach us what that entails. Just how are, he's, he's left us with the question, well then how are we to mature? What is that to look like? And now he aims to answer that question. What is the result of our salvation? What's the result of our unity in sound doctrine? What is the result of our maturity? And he's going to kind of spell it all out for us now. So the apostle is going to touch on several areas of the Christian walk throughout the rest of the epistle. And I'm sort of giving you this 
view forward so that you can prepare your minds and hearts in the weeks to come as to what to expect. If there ever really was a book that ought to change the face of the local church, it really is the book of Ephesians. If you want to know what the Christian life is meant to look like, you can go to the book of Ephesians. And so the apostle is going to speak of the Christian walk in great detail from this to the rest of the book. Now in chapter 5, Paul revisits the very doctrine he began with, emphasizing that Christ is the source of our salvation and how we are to live in light of that. Namely, we're to be imitators of God, he's going to tell us in the middle of chapter 5. Paul will deal with, um, in chapter 5, he's going to deal with sort of the antinomian view of grace. They've misunderstood the gospel, and rather than striving after holiness, they're justifying loose living, licentious living, sinful living, sort of under the banner of free grace. He's going to talk about that. And he's going to remind us that we're not to look like the world, but we're to walk in the Spirit. After Paul tells us that we're to be filled with the Spirit, he demonstrates then how that practically plays out in our relationships. And so we're going to spend quite a large section dealing with relationships. Paul's going to teach us how to relate to one another in the church. If we're spilled if we're filled with the Spirit, if we're unified in sound doctrine, then what does that look like in our interactions with one another? He's going to tell us how that looks like with our interactions between husband and wife and children and parents. He's going to deal with all of those issues. How we confront our own emotions, how we deal with disputes and differences in the church. And then in chapter 6, he's going to leave us with the sobering reality that the Christian has an enemy, that it's not flesh and blood, but it's spiritual in nature. It's a somber chapter. It's a solemn chapter. This is a profound truth because I think we tend to forget we battle things we can't see. Like especially in our sect of the church, we tend to rely very heavily on understanding doctrines and getting it right intellectually and that's good and we need that but we can't forget that we're in a spiritual battle and it's very real and so Paul is going to press that truth on us in chapter 6 and we we like to have physical battles so that we can see and so we can come up with physical problems and physical, or physical solutions, rather. But here, in the last chapter, Paul says that there's an enemy of your soul, which you can't see. It's invisible. It's an enemy that would desire to tear apart your relationships, your family, your church. And if he can, hinder your relationship with God. It's an enemy that you can't see, feel, or touch. And yet, it's as real as enemy, any enemy that you could see with your own two eyes. And so, and Paul is going to implore us to realize that the Christian life is one of warfare and that we have an enemy that would seek to destroy us. He's going to press upon us that everyone is in this battle whether they want to be or not. Whether you're Christian or not, everyone is in a spiritual battle. Except the difference is there's a great hope for the Christian. The difference is that for the Christian, God has provided weapons of warfare, the protections against the enemy. And so it's all very practical, personal, and profound. And so that is sort of our journey moving forward from here. And so if you don't yet have a notebook, I'd recommend you get one. And if by now you haven't gotten a Bible with tabs, that will help you as we reference other chapters going forward. So that might be a good thing to do. We should have your Bibles turn to Ephesians, and with that very short and brief introduction, we're going to get into our passage this morning. Let me read it to us. So, I say, so this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. 
So remember, Paul's last words is that we grow up, that we become mature, and now he's saying that you walk no longer as Gentiles walk. An evidence of maturity is that you no longer walk the way that you walked. And so Paul begins prefacing what he's about to say, making sure that we realize that this teaching is from God. So Paul doesn't just say, I say, right? He says, so this I say, and then what comes next is actually very important, and affirm together with the Lord. Right? We understand that the apostles writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's putting weight behind his writing in an extra way here by saying that I'm agreeing with the Lord's teaching on this. And so listen, dear Ephesians. He goes on to make this profound statement of practical application, and it is very practical. What does it mean to be mature? Well, it means that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk. And so there's, there's a contrast here. The Christians are contrasted with the Gentiles. Now, just to say a word about the Gentiles, remember the word for Gentile refers here to those who are godless. It's used in two primary ways in the Bible. We have the Jew and the Gentile as a people group. And then we have later on and predominantly in the New Testament, the Gentile was referenced as a way to say an unbeliever. And that's what we have here. If we read from 1 Thessalonians, we really get an understanding of the use of the word in our text. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 through 5 says this, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so that is the way in which we are using the phrase Gentile here, or rather Paul is using. And so we really have a great comparison here. The apostle is showing us what it means to be a mature Christian. And the first thing he says is that we are to look different than the unbelieving world. He's just told us to mature, and the very first thing he says is that that looks like you are different than an unbelieving world. It should be pretty familiar language to us. It's reminiscent of the very first line in the same chapter, right? Paul opens the chapter with, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, indicating that there is now a different way that you should walk as a believer compared to the life before. And so we've seen this language before. In fact, in chapter 2, he went into great detail about the differences between the believer and the Gentile, right? He laid out very plainly what we were as an unbeliever, what our life was like as an unbeliever. He says in chapter 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the way you lived and walked before you came to Christ. That's the Gentile. Those are sons of disobedience he's describing in chapter 2. He says, among them, we too all formally lived, right? Formally, again, emphasizing that we should no longer be walking this way. We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so then Paul comes to the most amazing two words a human could ever hear. But God. Now, back to chapter 4 and verse 17, the apostle says that as a Christian, as one who is to be mature in the faith, that you are no longer to walk as the Gentiles walk. The word walk just simply is a reference to the whole Christian life. How you live your life is meant to look different than the Gentile. Every part of our lives is to be different from those who do not know God. Now remember here, the apostle speaking to the Ephesian church, remember where 
the Ephesians are. They're in Ephesus, right? Ephesus is a major city, if you'll recall from some weeks ago. It holds the temple of Artemis. It's a place of major trade. It's a major hub. And so pagan practices and debauchery and open sensual perversion is all around the Ephesians all the time. There's no place that the Ephesian believers can go to get away from the perversity of the world around them. And so Paul is imploring them to remember that as believers, and if they're to mature, that they need to not look like the Gentiles around them. One commentator describes the church at Ephesus this way. He says the church at Ephesus was, quote, a small island of despised people in a giant cesspool of wickedness. That's probably an apt description from all the study I've done of the city of Ephesus. And so Paul knows that this is the life that these Ephesian Christians once belonged to. This is the life that they came out of, most of them. And so he presses upon them that if they are to be mature, that they must no longer look like what they were. They should never be confused with the unbelieving world around them. Now that's an interesting description because as I was reading a little more about the situation at Ephesus, I thought, well, this isn't really any different than the world we live in today. Homosexuality runs rampant in our own society, and that's to say nothing of things like polyamory that's becoming more popular or the growing interest in so-called minor attracted persons, which is just another name for pedophilia. We've got college professors who are promoting this kind of thing all over the country, and it's increasing. In addition to those things in our own country, sexual perversions are running rampant. We see that. All sorts of other godless behaviors. Paganism is on the rise in our own country. False teachers within the church is on the rise in our own country. Lawlessness is undeniably increasing. You'd have to be living under a rock to think that's not true. As well as an increase of godless philosophies that are not only antithetical to the Christian faith, but are increasingly hostile. We sort of live in our own Ephesus of the day. But this is the world which each of us were once part of. And though we may not have engaged in everything the world had to offer, we certainly were living just like those in the world would live. And Paul references this very fact and truth in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. We came out of this world, but we were washed. We were sanctified. And so here in the text, Paul is really making a huge distinction for the mature believer or the ones that he's calling to maturity, the distinction between the old man, the Gentile, and the new man, the Christian. And that distinction is found all throughout the New Testament, and here in our verse 17, the apostle reminds Christians that they are not to be what they once were if they are to be mature. God has transformed them. He's brought them from life to death. God has transformed you. He's brought you from life to death. He's taken your heart of stone, and he's given you a heart of flesh. And so, as Christians, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the title and no longer like the Gentile. Now, it's very interesting because the Apostle Paul is really content here to focus on the negative aspect of growing in maturity, right? What we are not to be is where he goes first, what we're not to do. And Paul often does cover all the angles, and so he covers the negative as well as later on he'll cover the positive side of that. And by the end... We're going to have a clear picture of what the Christian walk is to look like. 
Paul continues with sort of this negative perspective on what we are to avoid as Christians if we are to mature. And so he tells us not only that we are to not act like unbelievers, but then he proceeds to give us some very practical characteristics. So he says you're not supposed to be like Gentiles, but that begs the question, well, what are the Gentiles like? What is it exactly that we're not supposed to be like? And he really gives us three characteristics here. The first characteristic of the Gentile, if you'll look at the text there, is that they are futile in their mind. That's a very polite way of saying they're spiritually empty-minded. They're spiritually empty-minded. In fact, the actual word for futile here carries the idea of being purposeless or worthless. The unbeliever has a skewed view of morality and of spirituality. They're tainted by the stain of sin to the degree that they are totally futile and completely worthless when it comes to understanding God, the world, and how we should live in it. They're futile in their minds. Romans 1.28 says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So they have a depraved mind. In chapter 8 of Romans, verses 6 and 8, the apostle says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They're futile in their mind. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And, of course, then Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Now, remember, Paul is saying this is what we shouldn't look like, right? Don't be like the Gentiles. By the way, this is what that looks like. Let's not be futile in the mind. And here's the reality, folks. The battle of the Christian life happens first in the mind. The battle of the Christian life happens first in the mind. When we come to Christ, we profess a different way of thinking. And we change the way we live based on the way we think. We understand that that is a work of God. But that is nonetheless where it happens. It's the very reason Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So if you ever go to a place that tells you to check your brains at the door, just go ahead and check yourself out the door. So we're renewed by the mind. We're in to engage the mind. The Christian is not supposed to close their mind off to learning uh, and doctrine. So the Christian life happens first in the mind. So we're to have the mind of Christ rather than the mind of the world, right? Paul says no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Now, in reality, you do have the mind of Christ if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. But we grow in that by being renewed by the word of God, and our mind is renewed as we're exposed to, and we study, and we learn the word of God. And so we mature by engaging. So after Paul implores us to no longer walk or live the way the Gentiles live, he then sort of elaborates a little more on the Gentile way of life. And so as we continue through the text here this morning, we're meant to learn exactly what not to be. And the very next thing that he comes to is 
the hardness of heart. But the Gentile walking in the futility of their mind, being darkened and the understanding excluded from the life of God because, so they do this for a reason. Why are they futile in the mind? They do this because of the ignorance that is in them. Well, why is there ignorance in them? Because of the hardness of their heart. So the reason Paul says that they're excluded from the life of God is because of their ignorance, which is a result of a hardened heart. This willful choice to remain in sin, to reject God, and so God in turn blinds them and turns them over to their depravity. Romans 1 makes it very clear that all men know something of God's existence, right? Let me remind us of that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, you can't suppress the truth if you don't know it, right? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The Gentile has a darkened heart. The unbeliever has a darkened heart, rejecting the truths of God, even those that they do know. This is what the apostle is saying, that the Christian should not be like. No longer walk as the Gentiles walk. In other words, live in a way that's consistent with your knowledge of God, that's consistent with you having a new heart, with the Spirit of God in you. Not hard-hearted towards the things of God, not stubborn when it comes to being corrected by the word of God, but with a new heart that loves the things of God, that approaches God and his word with great love and affection and commitment. So Paul reveals the character of the Gentile, and he implores us to no longer exhibit those same characters. And now he's going to move on to sort of show the result of that character in their life. Paul says, they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. The person who turns away from the things of God, giving themselves to the things of the world, become callous. That's just a reality. I mean, we, we've even seen it in the church, right? Someone walks away from the church, and before long, they start to get bitter and callous against the things of God and that typically grows deeper and deeper over time if they continue on that path they're callous to righteous living callous to true spirituality callous to any standard of truth or morals for living there's really nothing more sad than to watch someone who professes Christ begin to turn away from the things of God and we so often see this reality and it generally just very simply starts with a disinterest in meeting with God's people and we've seen that you find someone they miss church here miss church there and before long they're just not very interested in going to church and of course that once that ball starts rolling it rarely stops from there in fact it spirals they just stop attending altogether, and this is usually paired with an increase of love for friends and things and people of the world, right? Start hanging out with unbelievers and desiring that, and pretty soon they just simply love the things of the world, and in the end, for many of them, we really just discover that they never truly were of God to begin with, and that's a very sad thing to witness, they were, in other words, sort of like the seed that fell on rocky soil. At some stage, they heard the gospel and they responded with joy, but then there was no root, and eventually they became callous and they fell away. And so the Apostle Paul is pleading, really, with these believers in Ephesus 
to understand that they have been made new in Christ. And if they're to mature, that they shouldn't look anything like the Gentiles, that their life shouldn't look anything like their own previous Gentile life, that there should be a contrast, a difference between the old man and the new man. That's really his point here. He says, in their callousness, they turn to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. If we ever had a living example of this kind of depravity we do today in the Western world, if you were to follow our country's history from its founding to today, you would undoubtedly see the process of the darkening of the mind. I think that's undeniable. There's nothing new in the world to be sure, but where we were once a society built at least on Christian principles and largely acknowledged God in some form or fashion, we now have a society that just openly rejects God. We had a president not too long ago that publicly made the statement, I believe it's the first of its kind in some time, that we were not a Christian nation. And now we have a society that has gone as far as a sexual revolution. You see, they, in their callousness, they turn to sensuality for every practice and every kind of impurity with greediness. The depraved mind and callous hearts always are enticed to turn to perversion. Always enticed. Maybe some don't go as far as they could, and that's really God's grace. Paul warns that we are not to be like the Gentiles who turn to sensuality. And let me just say this about sensuality. We hear that word and we often just think it's only related to sexuality, but that's not actually what the word means. It includes that, but it's quite a bit broader than that. And so we are susceptible to this type of thing as well. It really encompasses all sorts of indecencies. It carries the idea of being free from any moral restraint, not having any moral boundaries. In ancient literature, we see it used, and I think a good illustration, if we go to around the year 400 B.C., the word is used for a prominent Athenian statesman named Alcibiades. Well, it was used of him because he was known to be quite an unruly man, and in fact, he was noted to have hit an influential man just for the joy of doing so. So that word was attributed to him. You see, sensuality isn't just sexual in nature. It's without restraints, without decency. It describes someone who performs unrestrained desires, whatever they may be. And Paul makes it clear that this way of life leads to every sort of perversion, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. We see that in our country, right? I, I mean, I've heard politicians and prominent people and social media giants and news people promote things that I never thought in my life I would hear even be spoken of in public. This is the kind of thing that they would have been dealing with in Ephesus, to be sure. Really, the problem in our country comes down to this single truth that those who do not walk with God have given themselves over to sensuality. That's what it is. Abortion, homosexuality, drug legalization, social media platforms used for prostitution, a government that promotes all sorts of wickedness, and the constant bombardment of sexual propaganda everywhere you turn. That's why our country is being destroyed. And Paul, consistent with all of the doctrine he's been teaching, calls the Christian to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to avoid all of these things. Look, the Christians in Ephesus were just like you and I were, are. They were just like us. They were living in a city filled with godlessness. Everywhere they turned, everywhere they went, they were bombarded and tempted to come and rejoin 
the godless world. And Paul says, no, mature in the faith. You've left that life. You're a new man. There's a difference now. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He starts in the very first verse of chapter 4. Then we get to this portion, the middle of chapter 4, and he's sort of re-emphasizing the fact that as a believer, you should look different. You should feel different. Your affection should be different. Your mind should be different. This is what growing and maturing looks like. Now let me just say that often I do think young believers uh, try to skip some steps and it, it causes frustration. So if you're young in the faith or one that is young in the faith, it's not that your life is going to instantly from one moment to the next look like you've been in the faith studying diligently and building disciplines for 50 years. That's probably not what's going to happen. But the point is that your life will increasingly look more holy as you go along, increasingly look like Christ, that you find yourself moving from the milk of the word to the meat of the world. You find your, the desires that you once had are gone or diminishing. There's still temptation, but maturity is that you are losing all of those things about you that maybe even still be some attached to you that were of the world. That if someone were to look at your life and look at the world around you, for whatever else they may say, they would be forced to say that there is something very different about you. That's Paul's admonition to us that we no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Don't be futile in your thinking because now you have the mind of Christ. Don't be callous and hard-hearted because you have a new heart. Avoid a life driven by sensuality, by impurity, and by greed. If you need to cut off things, then do that. Maybe you need to cut off friendships. Maybe you need to turn that TV off. Maybe there are books that you shouldn't be reading that you need to put down. I don't know what it is in your life, but don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Avoid a life driven by sensuality, impurity, and greed because you're children of God. Because you've been redeemed and bought by the blood of Christ because your life is precious because it was paid with a price higher than any price has ever been paid for anything. You are sons and daughters of a holy God, and we are to be holy as he is holy. And so Paul beckons us to live a life that is different than the life of the Gentile. Let's pray.